Good morning. Happy Easter. Colin didn't know I was going to do this, so he looks about as surprised as you do. <laughs> you might have some questions, and that's understandable and appropriate, because today we're starting a brand new sermon series called Great Question, and it's all about your questions, questions that we have about Christianity, questions that we have about the Bible, some of the things that it says, questions about how to live a godly life in this world today. How do we do that? We all got questions, and sometimes we don't have always uh, available outlets to ask these questions, or sometimes life just gets busy, and so we forget to ask these questions. And so the whole point of this series is just to provide an opportunity for you to ask your questions, and if I do my job right, maybe offer some answers from the pages of Scripture. And we started collecting questions several weeks ago, just kind of trying to get a a feel for what this series was going to look like. And there were a lot of questions that had to deal with heaven and the afterlife and what comes after this and how does it all unfold. And there are some specific questions. And and there's a lot of questions and curiosities we have about what happens after we die. And so I thought today, given the circumstances that we're celebrating Jesus' resurrection, this is a great day to kind of answer those questions, to focus on that topic. So I'm going to synthesize those into maybe even a bigger question, one that deals with kind of what comes after death, but also has a lot to do with what we do with life today as well. What is the hope of Christianity? What is our hope? That's a really big question. And it's a question that we all, I hope, know the answer to, or at least discover the answer to, because it has a lot of impact, not just on what we believe, but how we live and how we exercise this faith. Unfortunately, over the last several centuries, the answer to that question has oftentimes been a little misunderstood or a little misconstrued by well-intentioned people, Sunday school teachers, hymn writers, ministers, even at times biblical scholars and commentators, not so much in the last hundred years, but definitely 500 years plus back. There's a lot of misunderstanding around this idea. And the, the common answer to that question, what is the hope of Christianity, many times is phrased like this. The hope of Christianity is to go to heaven, or for our souls rather, to go to heaven for eternity after we die. And if I were to ask you, what is the hope of Christianity, many of us would say, yeah, that sounds about right, for my soul to go to heaven for all eternity after I die. And that kind of conjures up images in our minds that sometimes look a little like this, you know, people in the clouds, wearing white robes, halos, playing the harp all day as if that's what eternity is going to look like. When we look at Scripture, however, we get a slightly different picture. I have not practiced taking this off, so forgive me if it's not the most graceful. This is a a very pervasive idea and misunderstanding. In fact, even in the hymn we just sang, Old Rugged Cross, beautiful song, a lot of truth in that song. There's one verse that we chose not to sing, however, because it kind of perpetuates this idea. He'll call me someday to my home far away. It sort of insinuates that heaven is supposed to be our home. This is the ultimate ideal and destiny that God has in mind for his people. What we discover when we look at scripture, though, when we look at the significance of Jesus and his resurrection, is that God actually has so much more in store for us and his people. There is an even greater hope available to us. Now, before we get really into it and we start digging around, let me just preface everything by saying this. I understand, and I personally feel this, that for many of us, particularly those who have lost loved ones, 
the notion of our soul going to heaven for all eternity as the ultimate goal is very comforting, and it is at no point in the time my intention to strip us of comfort. In fact, I believe that when we actually sit down and we look at what is this doctrine of hope, that there is more comfort and more assurance made available to us because it's what God actually intends to do and will accomplish. So if you'll bear with me, I don't think anybody's going to be disappointed this morning when we look at what God has in store for his people and what our hope is. Now, so what is our hope? What's the hope of Christianity? I kind of already tore the Band-Aid off, but let's back up. Let's unpack this idea a little bit. Our ultimate hope is not for our soul to go to heaven for all eternity after we die. That's not the ultimate goal or the hope. And the idea starts to kind of fall apart when we start to look at the notion of of what is the soul? What do we talk about? What do we mean when we say the soul? Many times when we talk about our soul going to heaven, what we mean is this idea that the soul is the, the real us, right? It's the spiritual us, the real us. And it's just sort of trapped inside of this physical body. This is just a vessel that just sort of gets us through this world until the real us can be free and, and go to heaven. That's kind of what we mean oftentimes when we talk about the soul. The problem is that idea finds its roots more in the the Platonic philosophy of the pagan Greek world than it does in the pages of Hebrew Scripture. When we start to dig into Scripture, we get a little bit different fundamental understanding of how God put us together. But this idea, it has consequences. This idea that the real us is just kind of trapped in this body that really is kind of irrelevant because when it dies, it's put in the ground and that's okay because I'm free and, and the real me goes to experience eternal bliss. That kind of rubs scripture the wrong way too. You can see this idea, this dualism between the physical and the spiritual, the, the irrelevant and the, the superior. You can see it show up in some of the other hymns that we sing. Really popular, catchy one, at least down south where I grew up. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. It's kind of a celebratory song, real catchy, but what's it really saying? When I die, when my earthly life is ended, hallelujah, praise be to God. And I know that there's hope, there's expectation in there that's being looked forward to, but what we're really celebrating is that finally this earthly life is done. I don't know anybody having lost someone says, finally, their earthly life is done. Praise be to God, hallelujah, because death hurts. Now, there's comfort. There's comfort in the promises of Jesus. There's a peace that we can have, but certainly death is not something to be celebrated or to, to yell hallelujah about. Death is, is an enemy. Throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, before the cross, after the cross, even the book of Revelation, which used to say to the very end of the age, death is consistently pictured as an enemy, a defeated enemy. But an enemy, nonetheless, never a, a welcomed friend. Death is an affront to who God is as the maker and the sustainer of life. Death is the wages of sin. It's not a good thing. But we can start to kind of get a little backwards in our theology and start to misunderstand the significance of life on earth and the significance of what we do right now because of this misguided hope, this idea that the real goal is just to get away, 
to be some ethereal soul in heaven for all time. But it starts to fall apart, like I said, when we look at the pages of Scripture, we miss this wonderful way where people are put together. If we look at the pages of Genesis, way, way back at the beginning of the Bible, you read the very first story, the creation story. How does God make the world? Well, he makes it this physical, material world. And he intentionally makes it a physical, material world. And when he makes it and he surveys all that he's done, he's created, he doesn't say, well, that's kind of irrelevant or that's just a phase. It's, it'll pass away in time. He looks at his created work. He says, it is very good. The physical world was pleasing to God. He wasn't looking for some spiritual world that was really the plan. You look at how he put people together. Very similar story. He, he grabs dust from the earth and he breathes life into it. And we become what the Hebrew Bible calls nefesh. Nefesh is an inherently physical word. It, it actually a lot of times refers to the throat. The way that your throat can swallow food and swallow water and take that nutrition into your body. You need that to live. And the way that your, your body or th your throat rather facilitates breathing, at least in Hebrew thought, they didn't cut you open and look at your lungs, but through the throat, breath entered the body. You need that to live. If something happens to your throat, if it's cut or if it's crushed, you die. The throat is this wonderful metaphor for what it means to be alive. It is an inherently physical existence that we have. In other words, God didn't make us as immaterial souls or immortal souls trapped inside this, this husk, kind of like a cicada shell that gets stuck to the tree in the springtime. He made us physical beings, embodied beings. This enmeshment of the physical and the spiritual is almost inseparable. And when it was done, he looked at mankind and their physical bodies and he said, it is good. And after making this physical world and making material bodies for us and making us inherently physical beings, God gave us physical work to do in this physical world. In Genesis chapter 1, he creates mankind in his image and he says, let them rule over and subdue creation. In other words, this world wasn't just like a tame walk in the park. It was wild. It was uncultivated. It needed to be worked. It needed to be organized, ordered. It needed to be set into a proper state of existence. In other words, God kind of invited humanity to continue his creative work. And he wanted us to do it physically with our hands. Genesis chapter 2, he speaks to Adam and Eve. He charges them with working and keeping the garden. I want you to till it. I want you to weed it. I want you to protect it because it's important. This physical world that God made matters to him. It's not some irrelevant thing that we just get to escape or hope to escape. He made it and called it good. Now, how much sense does it make for the entire book of Genesis to repeatedly tell us that creation was good, that our bodies were good, that work was good, if the real plan all along was for us to fly away as immaterial souls, to be ghost people in the clouds wearing white moo-moos playing the harp. Kind of starts to fall apart, doesn't it? This idea that our real hope is just to be some soul in heaven for all eternity in this holy spiritual existence or totally spiritual existence, it kind of disregards all of the work and the wonders that God put into his creation. But more than just sort of a theological rub, it starts to have practical effects on us as well in the way that we live our lives. Because if this world is ultimately irrelevant and our hope is just to escape and get away, then what does it really matter what happens here? 
Why does it matter if there's injustice in this world? Or if there are corrupt powers in this world? After all, we're just hoping to get away from it anyway. Why would we get involved to set things right? Or our bodies. What does it matter if I take care of my body? It's just a shell that I hope to escape and go to glory someday, right? Why would I take care of it even though God made it and called it good? Or other people's physical bodies and the physical needs that they have or the ailments that they suffer or the issues that they deal with, the loneliness that they suffer. Why would I expend my energy and put so much of my heart and soul into addressing those if the body's just a shell that we're all hoping to get away from anyway so we can be souls in heaven? You start to see where this starts to really rub against the call of Jesus in the New Testament. A misunderstanding of where our hope actually is leads to a misunderstanding of how we walk with Christ in this world and live out His calling. It's kind of an important question. What is our hope? Well, before we get there, let's back up because I'm sure there's a question on everybody's mind. If we don't go to heaven when we die, where do we go, Jordan? Answer me that, preacher, because you just spent 15 minutes dashing my dreams and I'm really worried about Nana right now, so let's explain this, okay? Now, let's just back up a little bit. I didn't say believing people don't go to heaven. What I said was that our ultimate hope is not to be souls in heaven for all eternity. And there's a world of difference there. When we look at the New Testament, it certainly gives us some confidence that we just don't go in the ground and stay there. There's a reward for God's people. And we have a lot of questions about that. A lot of specific questions that you ask in the questions you turned in. Things like, when does it happen? What is it like? Um, you know, what kind of existence do we have there? How long does heaven last? Is heaven immediate? Is there like a layover period? What's the deal with purgatory? All those important questions we're not going to get into this morning. The purgatory one, it's not real. Don't worry about that. But there's a lot of other things that we have questions about. And here's the, the thing. The New Testament isn't especially concerned with answering a lot of our questions about what heaven is like. It's really just concerned on helping us get there. But there are some things that it says that we can take to heart and that we can find a lot of confidence in and a lot of assurance in and a lot of peace in when our time comes or when our loved one's day arrives. Let's look at the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 21. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the, the church of Philippi. Paul's in prison as he writes this. He's not real sure if he's going to live or die. He's going to face trial, what the verdict's going to be. He's not real sure. He's got suspicions, but it's kind of up in the air. And so, facing his own mortality, here's what he writes in verse 21. He says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He writes another letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This also talks about this kind of heavenly reward. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So these are just a couple of the passages that kind of speak to what happens after we die. What exactly is our existence? And it makes it pretty clear that we, and when he says we, he's not talking about this 
immortal incorporeal soul that we sometimes think about. But in some sense, we go to be with Christ. That's pretty great. And Paul says in Philippians, there in that passage that we read, that it is better by far to be with Christ in his presence. Because it means that he would be free from this trial, this, this, these hardships of living in a world and coexisting with sin and the bitterness that inevitably comes with that. And so we're in the presence of Christ. We're free from the, the effects of sin and the, the turmoil that it causes. That's another great hope to have. In Thessalonians, he says that we will go or we will be with Christ. A little later, he says that we'll be caught up with him. So there's kind of a reunion that happens in heaven. We are aware of other people there. It's not just like in this isolated state of perpetual tunnel vision. There's fellowship and community. If we were to read the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, the author there tells us, or he calls heaven, this great Sabbath rest. And he says, God's people rest from their works in much the same way that God rested from his labor on the original Sabbath day in creation. So we have this existence where we go, where it is better by far, where we are with Christ, where we have fellowship with, with fellow believers, loved ones. We are reunited. We have this, this peace and this calm that comes from being free from sin and its effects in the world. It sounds like a pretty great place to me. But as great and wonderful as it is, and as much of a reward as it is for God's people who believe, it's not our ultimate hope or our final destination. When I was uh, in college, my roommate got married way down in Florida, and not like the panhandle of Florida, like the way southern tip of Florida. So we basically drove across the country again. Uh, Florida's a long state. It took forever to get there, and the drive was a bit of a slog, because after a while, all of the scenery just looks the same. It all blends together. And after so many hours in a car, it doesn't matter what position you sit in, it's uncomfortable. Uh, it's, it's just, you can't get situated in a comfortable way. And after 10 hours, you've talked about everything there is to talk about with the other people in the car, so the conversation and the fellowship begins to dwindle, and the whole thing is just kind of, you can't wait for it to be done, honestly. But then, about midway through the state of Florida, we stopped at a restaurant. And it was a Mexican restaurant. The food honestly wasn't that good, but that wasn't important. It was important because we got out of the car for a break. And we were able to stretch our limbs and get the blood circulating again. And we were able to look at new scenery and be reinvigorated. We were able to talk and laugh again because we didn't have the confines of the car or sort of the, the malaise of the drive hanging over us. Our fellowship was renewed. And we laughed and we had a great time. And I really enjoyed that restaurant. It was a much-needed break and a much-needed rest. But as great as that restaurant was, that wasn't our final destination. That was just the prelude to the even greater celebration of the wedding. And in many ways, this picture of heaven, sometimes the New Testament calls it paradise, sometimes it just shorthand calls it heaven, it is a wonderful rest for God's people. It is a well-deserved break of peace and blessing and reward, but it's not the final destination. And it's not the great hope that God has called us to. It's just the prelude to the wedding, to the even greater celebration and hope that God has in mind. And he gave us a little foretaste, a little preview of what that great hope looks like on the first Easter Sunday when Jesus was raised back to life and walked out of that tomb. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we get a glimpse of the real hope 
of Christianity. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus points us to a physical, bodily hope. And I hope we understand that that's what the Bible means when it talks about resurrection. Resurrection is not just some way of talking about some sort of spiritual thing that happens or spiritual existence. And resurrection is not a metaphor for Jesus just kind of lives in all of us again. Nor is it talking about some sort of immortal soul raised back to life to walk around and be sort of pseudo-alive or pseudo-physical. No, resurrection in the Bible has a very specific meaning. And it was a very unique idea in the ancient world that was unique to the Jewish people and their expectations. The rest of the world wasn't even looking for this. It means a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. And the book of Luke does a really good job of stressing that this is the idea and this is what Jesus experienced. If we were to look at Luke chapter 24, verse 36, it says, While they were still talking about this, the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost, a spirit, does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still, not, or still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, they asked them, or he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. The reason Luke is stressing all of these physical details is because even in the first century A.D., people were having a really hard time wrapping their brains around what does it mean when you say Jesus was raised back to life. It was the natural, platonic, Greek, pagan assumption that you're talking about like a spirit or a specter or a ghost, right? That's what you mean. And Luke says, no, 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 no. No, I mean a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Ghosts don't have flesh and blood. Ghosts don't get hungry and say, y'all gonna eat all that fish. This was a physical, bodily event that Christ experienced. And this wasn't an accident or an oopsie-daisy by God. It was his express intention and desire and ideal for Jesus to be raised physically, bodily, perfected. Just as it was his intention and desire and ideal long ago that we would be created physical, material beings in a physical, material world and not some incorporeal soul trapped in a husk. No, God desires his people to be living, physical people, material people. Jesus was physically, bodily raised back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a really important point to take note of in light of what Paul goes on to say in Romans about what the real hope of Christianity is. If we were to look at the book of Romans chapter 8, in verse 10, here's what he says. He says, but if Christ is in you, so if you put your faith in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, meaning these bodies are going to die, it's going to happen, it's inevitable, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. we got to know, who, whose righteousness are we talking about here? It's not you and I. Because the whole point of the gospel is that we are not righteous people. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious ideal. We're talking about the righteousness of Jesus. This gift of grace that God gives to every one of us 
when we throw up our hands and say, God, I need you to rescue me because I can't save myself. I know the depths of my being. I know my spirit. I am not upright, pure, true, and holy, and I need Jesus to make me as such. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our sin and our iniquity, and he gave us his innocence and his righteousness. We are clothed in that. So that when God looks upon us on our day before him, he doesn't see that time you messed up and mouthed off to your mom or dad when you were 12. He doesn't see that time you got angry and said that regrettable thing to your husband or your wife. He doesn't see that thing you did to your coworker because you were jealous or whatever. All he sees is the innocence of Jesus, which leads him to say, not guilty, welcome home. That's the righteousness we're talking about here. That's the gospel. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead, God, will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So in other words, if Jesus was raised physically, bodily, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you are clothed in His righteousness, you will be raised physically, bodily, perfected as Christ was by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is our hope, guys. Not white moo-moos in heaven. Perfected bodies. That's God's calling, his highest ideal, and our great hope. The book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it calls Jesus the firstborn from among the dead. And the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it calls Jesus the first fruits from among those who have fallen asleep. Firstborn. First fruits. The idea here is that whatever Jesus experienced in his resurrection, it's God's intention that his people, the rest of his people, would experience that as well. Jesus was the first domino that fell and set off this big, beautiful chain reaction of God's plan to make all things new. And we mean all things. Sometimes when we hear that we're going to be raised physically, bodily, perfected as Christ was, we have this question, where are we going to live with these new perfected bodies? Are we going to live here on earth again? Because this place seems kind of messed up. I'm not real sure I want to stick around here for all eternity. It's kind of cold outside. It gets really humid in the summer. That doesn't seem like paradise to me. So we must go to heaven, right? Our new perfected bodies, we go to heaven. No. That's where this hope gets even wilder and even grander. Sometimes God's intentions stretch so far above what our imaginations can bear to stretch and reach for. And that's what this plan of redemption is. It starts with you and me. But when God said he's making all things new, he's making all things new. If we were to skip down just a little further, book of Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he starts talking about creation. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So there's something good coming. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. We're talking about sin here. We're going to take a break from this for a second. Way back in the book of Genesis, when sin enters the world through the story of Adam and Eve, there's a curse of sin that falls upon mankind. To the woman, it says, you'll have pain in childbirth. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will lord over you. To the man, he says, from the dust you came to the dust you will return. You will live by the sweat of your brow. You will work the ground. There will be thorns and thistles that interrupt and demean the good intention of work that God had for you. But you think about that phrase, thorns and thistles. Those come from the ground. 
The curse of sin didn't stop at you and me. All of creation has been impacted by this infiltration of evil. And here's what he goes on to say. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who, who subjected it in hope. So the creation has a hope, too. And hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So in the same way that you and I live under the tyranny of sin and we long for redemption, that we have this great hope, creation also lives under the tyranny of sin. And it longs for redemption, and it also has a great hope. But it's not this hope that all of God's people will fly away to glory as incorporeal souls, just to leave everything behind, to fall away to the wayside. No, the hope of creation is that the children of God, you and me, the redeemed of Jesus, will usher in the glory and the freedom of God's kingdom, that creation itself would be redeemed and would be made new. That's the great hope here, guys. Physical, bodily, perfected resurrection, living in a physically redeemed creation to do the physical work that God called us to at the very beginning, that good, creative, cultivating, rewarding work that we find satisfying. I was talking to somebody actually yesterday after a Bible study. We were talking just about our pasts and stuff, and he said there was a time where uh, when he and his wife first got married, they were living in an apartment. It was unfinished. And the landlord said, I'll tell you what, you finish the place and you can live there rent-free. And he said, it was a lot of fun doing the electrical and doing the drywall and hanging cabinets, painting walls, putting down flooring. It was a lot of fun because it wasn't my money. He was buying it all. I was just doing the work. That's even more fun. But there is something rewarding. Taking unorganized, disorganized, uncultivated materials and making something out of it. Maybe it's a quilt. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's, it's a garden. Maybe it's a, a dish that you made for dinner. Maybe it's something, whatever your hobby is. Maybe it's a hot rod. Maybe, maybe it's going hunting and, and finding this meat and processing it, making it. Whatever your thing is, we've experienced that reward that work can be. And that's part of this great and glorious future that God has made for us. Your body will be made new and raised in a creation that is made new and redeemed to do the work that God always dreamed and intended for us to participate in and enjoy, and that kind of sounds way better than white moo-moos and harps in the clouds for all eternity. That's the great hope that God's called us to, and it all got started 33 AD on Easter Sunday. When that tomb opened up and Jesus walked out alive, death was dethroned, and chaos was taken down a peg, and that was the day that the kingdom of God started to invade this world in a whole new way. And life started taking back everything that death had snatched away. And it started with you and me. It started with people being made new on the inside through the death of Jesus. In the hope and the promise that they would be raised and made new on the outside like Jesus. But it wasn't going to stop with mankind. Because God didn't just make people. He made all of creation and he made it good. And his intention is that it will be very, very good once again. And so life is taking back the living creatures that move upon the face of the earth and the birds that fly across the sky and the seas that teem with the life of the fish and the marine life. It's taken back the hills and the mountains and the rivers and the streams and the skies and the stars and the sun and the moon. All of creation is God's and all of creation is going to be redeemed and made new. 
That's the hope that we have, guys. When that stone rolled back and the dead man came back to life, death quaked in terror and entropy's days were numbered because God is raising up dead things and making it new again. I don't know about you, but that gets me so fired up, so much more than sitting in some clouds as a soul, not really knowing what eternity looks like, but knowing God's good plan is going to come to fruition. That's exciting. There's a reason that one of the first stories in the Bible starts with the tree of life in old creation, and the last story in the Bible ends with the tree of life in new creation. God is bringing it all back to where it started and how it was meant to be. And our great hope is that that's how it will be. And that has a lot of impact on how we live this life here and now. Because if God is going to all of this work to redeem creation, that must mean that this world still matters. And that what happens in it still matters. Because the world is not just some material thing to be discarded so that we can all go to heaven where the real plan is. No, God is working to redeem creation because it's still good in his eyes. So what I do here must matter. And if there's corruption, if there's injustice, if there's evil in this world, it's not the kind of thing that can be ignored. Because my hope isn't to fly away. My hope is to see this place redeemed. And if there's somebody whose physical body is experiencing need, or is experiencing suffering, or is experiencing some sort of ailment, it isn't enough to just say, hey, don't worry, someday you'll go to heaven and I'll be over, because this body isn't something to be escaped. This body is something to be redeemed. And the good that you and I do in the name of God in this world, it isn't irrelevant or meaningless. It matters a lot, because this world isn't something to be forgotten to fall away to the wayside. It's something to be redeemed. In fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the longest treatment of resurrection in the New Testament, both Jesus's and ours. After this very long discourse about resurrection and what it is and what it isn't, here's how that chapter ends. Verse 58, he says, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, what you do in this life in the name of God and the good that you bring into it is not wasted time or energy. Far from it. The hope of Christianity is to see this place redeemed and made new, not escaped. So every good work that we do in the name of the Lord and every good that we accomplish in the name of the risen Jesus is cooperation and participation in God's grand plan of making all things new. It matters. It matters a lot. Our hope is not to escape and fly away to glory. Our great and glorious hope is to see the glory of God fill this place and restore and redeem and make all things new. That's what God put on display on Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago on this day when the stone rolled back and our hope bringer walked out alive and this grand plan of redemption started rolling forward in a whole new way. And my hope, my eager desire, my wish is that we would grab a hold of this realization, this hope, and that it would change us. They would change us on the inside, that we'd have a new appreciation for the work that God is doing, for the calling He's put on us. Not just to be onlookers who are passing through this world, but to be change agents in His name, 
in the name of the risen Jesus who yearn and work alongside the Lord to make things new again. It starts with you and me. It starts with the good we do in the name of the risen Jesus because the work we do in the Lord is not done in vain. That's part of our hope, guys. Let's pray, and then we're going to keep celebrating this hope that we have, not just for ourselves, but for all of God's created world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you that we have a real visible hope that if you did it for Jesus, you'll do it for us too. There is an empty tomb that sings the praises of your glory and your good intentions. And I pray that we would be moved by your spirit who lives within us to work in your name, to bring good into this world, to reclaim what is yours, to strike down death and tyranny and chaos and proclaim the goodness and the order and the mercy of God, that we would be alive, not in some consolation prize kind of a way, not in some spiritual way, but in a way, Father, that you intended, alive today and forever, as beings who will never have to taste the bitterness of distance from you again. It's our hope and our prayer that others would come to taste this good gift as well. That's the hope that we have in Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.